Hey friends, thank you for tuning in to the Ridgedale Students Podcast, a ministry to students, parents, and the community of Ridgedale Baptist Church located in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Our aim is to help students encounter Christ and be equipped as disciples to be sent out to engage the nations. If you listen and find this to be a helpful resource, we'd love for you to consider leaving a rating or review. We hope you're blessed by this episode as you walk the way of Jesus alongside us. Enjoy. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Um, So welcome. We are going into our first night of a two-week series that we're calling Tough Topics. And so Tough Topics, the purpose behind this series is kind of an an introduction to this thing called apologetics. So apologetics, you may have heard of it before, you probably haven't. Apologetics is basically the study of the defense of the faith. Like, if you're a Harry Potter person, think like Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. Yeah. So, like, I am your Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher tonight. So, when we look at apologetics, it's basically looking at the claims of all of these various worldviews, the the questions that come against Christianity, and saying, what is our defense for them? Not just a, a biblical defense but a a worldly defense, a defense that's based off of facts, evidence, things that we can look into creation and nature and say, this is in support of what Christianity claims, and so we lay hold of that, and we use that for the defense of the faith. You know, one thing, so actually two things before we go into this message. Uh, So one, this is going to look a lot different than the way I usually teach. Um, If you were expecting, like, you know, normal Wednesday night, Chris, this is not going to be like that so much as it is like me presenting a lot of facts. And there are a lot of facts to cover because what we're looking at tonight is the question, is Jesus the only way to God? The reason that I kind of chose to start with this question is pretty basic. It's because if you don't have a solid understanding that Jesus is the only way to God, then all other apologetic questions are going to be kind of superfluous. Like They're not going to be really that meaningful because you don't have the, the solid foundation of saying Jesus is the truth, he is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So this is where we're starting purposefully because we need this foundation in order to lay the groundwork for everything else we do in the study of apologetics. Second thing, if you've got a notebook tonight or a cell phone, I would highly encourage you to take notes. Like, this is stuff that I can tell you, if you're already kind of checking out right now, like if you've got your head in your hands and you're thinking about how you're going to go to sleep, this is not the night to do that. Because when you get this information, I can guarantee you that before the school year is out, probably before the month is out, this information will be useful to you because you go to school every single day with atheists, Muslims, possibly Hindus, possibly Buddhists. I don't know about the Buddhist or Hindu community in Chattanooga. Definitely atheists and Muslims, though. Like You have those in school with you every single day. And so this, this information is very useful. I would definitely encourage you to take notes on this. So tonight we're talking about, is Jesus the only way to God? Next week we're talking about the problem of pain. Why does pain exist? How does a good and loving God allow pain, pain to exist? And so here, here's what we're trying to get from this, this 
sermon series. And this is something that we're going to repeat every semester with different questions. So we're doing these two questions. Next semester we're going to talk, uh, tackle, is Christianity homophobic? Is uh, something else? I can't remember the other ones. I just remember that one because it's the first one. Uh, so the things we're trying to gain in this sermon series that's going to be repeating is, first, we hope to gain a biblically rooted perspective on the, on why the claims of Christianity are true and how they match up with the prevailing winds of culture. That's the big overarching theme. Like if you're in sixth grade right now, you're going to see this sermon series over the next like seven years. You're going to see this 14 times. And so you're going to have 14 moments of exposure to the most critical questions of faith that have been raised for the last like 2,000 years. So that's what we're hoping to accomplish with this in the long run. With this message in particular, though, here are the four things we're trying to accomplish. And this is going to kind of coincide with what's on the screen as our outline for tonight. First, we want to establish what truth is. What is truth? Can truth be absolute? And can we know absolute truth? Second thing, to establish why pluralism can't be true. If you don't know what pluralism is, I'll explain it here in a little bit. But basically, it's the idea that all worldviews are equally valid. Nobody has the truth. Everybody's right. Third thing is that we want to present the four critical questions that every worldview must answer. And then we want to compare and contrast those to the views of five different worldviews. First, Hinduism, Buddhism, atheism, Islam, and then we're going to look at what Christianity claims. The final thing we're going to do is we're going to present biblical evidence for why Jesus is the only way to God and why faith in Jesus is necessary to come to salvation. That's the four things that we're going to try and do through this particular message tonight. And so if you've got your notebook and you got your fingers ready to start doing some typing and some writing, let's get ready to go because this is going to be some high-paced stuff. Before we do that, though, let's just pray the Holy Spirit would guide us into all understanding of what we're going to hear and read tonight. Father, we just thank you for this time. God, we thank you that ours is not just a blind faith. God, you've called your disciples and you've called us to be people who think, not to be people who are thoughtless. So God, we just pray that during this time that we would just push tiredness, drama at school, whatever may be distracting us right now, away from our mind, and that we would focus in on what you would teach us through your word and through the observation of evidence that's presented here. So God, we just pray that you would speak to our hearts tonight. God, that it's not just a head knowledge, but it's a heart knowledge. We would take this and we would apply it in obedience, and that we would live as people who are totally devoted and sold out to what you've called us to. We just ask all of this in your son's name. Amen. So the first thing we look at is what is truth? What is truth? A lot of people are asking that question these days. They're saying, what is truth? How can we know truth? Big questions that people are asking right now. Does absolute truth exist? Can we know absolute truth? A lot of people are wanting to know the answer to this question. And so when we talk about truth... Here are two kinds of truth that people are talking about. There's subjective truth, and then there's objective truth. Subjective truth and objective truth. So here are the differences in the two. Subjective truth is truth that is based off of a person's perspectives, feelings, or opinions. Here's a, or here's a subjective truth statement. Samson Frakes is the cutest baby 
to have ever been born. Subjectively, that is true to me. But if I were to go to Bailey Sutton's mom and say, Bailey Sutton's mom, Darcel, is Samson Frakes, the cutest baby that's ever been born. Darcel might agree with me, but she probably won't. She has enough kids that she would say, no, one of my kids is cuter. So that's a subjective truth statement. It's based off of my opinions. It's based off of how I feel. But then there's objective truth. So here's the definition for objective truth. Objective truth is truth whose conditions are met without bias caused by a sentient subject. That's a big way of saying objective truth is truth that is true regardless of my opinions or the conditions that I put on it. So objective truth and subjective truth. An objective truth statement would look like this. I, Christopher Charles Frakes, standing in front of you tonight, was born on October 1st, 1991 in Athens, Alabama. That is an objective truth statement. Whether I agree with it or whether you agree with it, I was born in a hospital in Athens, Alabama on October 1st, 1991. That's an objective truth statement. I don't know what the temperature is in this room right now, but let's just say, for for argument's sake, it's 72 degrees. If I were to say it is 72 degrees in this room, that's an objective truth statement. If I were to say it's cold in this room, that's a subjective truth statement, because for some of you, 72 degrees may be cold. For others, you may be hot. So that's the difference. Are we tracking with that, or is everybody getting it? Subjective truth statements, objective truth statements? Is that working? Okay. So the problem that many people will come across is that a lot of people in our culture today are saying there can be no objective truth statements. There can be no absolute truth. Absolute truth and objective truth are kind of interchangeable terms. So a lot of people in our culture today are saying there can be no absolute truth. But let's just take a look at that statement really quick. If I walk up to you and I say, hey, There can absolutely be no absolute truth. What did I just make? I just made an absolute truth statement called a paradox. Exactly. I I just made a statement that negated itself because I've made an absolute truth claim that there can be no absolute truth. My, My argument is invalid at that point. And so when we look at you know, the argument of can there be absolute truth, and people want to say, no, truth has to be based off of your experiences, your feelings, your opinions in the moment. That just doesn't work because at the end of the day, 2 plus 2 is always going to be 4. There can be no other answer. And by its very nature, truth has to be exclusive. Because in order to be truth, it has to exclude every other answer that isn't right. Like I can't walk up to you and say 2 plus 2 equals 5. Because 2 plus 2 equaling 4 has to be right, but at the same time it has to say everything else other than 4 is wrong. So are we getting that, or are we understanding how truth works in that object of truth versus subject of truth? Okay. We're going to keep moving on. We look into what is pluralism. So the question is, can all worldviews be equally valid? Can all world religions be equally valid? A lot of people in our society today who want to say that there can be no objective truth also want to make the statement that every religion has to be true. The common thing that you'll see, if you're driving down the road and you see somebody with that blue bumper sticker that says coexist on it with all those weird little symbols, that's a pluralistic statement. 
Because those are all symbols of different world religions. And so what that person is claiming is that I believe all worldviews are equally valid. I am pluralistic in the way that I think. That's what it means when you see one of those bumper stickers. A lot of people that are, are pluralists will want to use this illustration. So they, they picture everyone that's on the path to God as being climbing up this mountain. And so you've got Christians here, you've got Muslims here, you've got Buddhists here, you've got Hindus here, and they're all taking different trails, but they're all going to reach the summit. They're all going to reach the peak of the mountain. But let's just take a look, just using one example, and there are multiple examples that we could use, but let's just use, for example's sake, the figure of Christ. Because all world religions have a category for who Jesus was. All world religions believe that Jesus was a person. And so let's just look at the different claims that these different world religions make. So in Hinduism, for example, Hindus see Jesus as a good man. He was a moral teacher. At the best possible outcome, Jesus was an avatar of the the Hindu god Vishnu. So Vishnu, if you're thinking just from a Christian perspective, because most of us don't have a working history of Hinduism, uh, Vishnu is basically like God the Father in Hinduism, except Hindus have 330 million different gods, and so go figure. So that's how Hindus see Jesus. Hindus see Jesus as a good man, possibly an avatar of Vishnu. Buddhists. Buddhists see Jesus as this thing called a bodhisattva. So a bodhisattva is someone who has achieved enlightenment, but they've postponed receiving enlightenment in order to help out other people who are still on earth trying to figure it out. That's how Buddhists see Jesus, as a bodhisattva. Next, we look at Islam. Islam and Christianity want to make a lot of very similar claims to each other. If you know a Muslim person, they may try and argue with you at some point that Christians and Muslims believe in the same God. I'm here to tell you they absolutely do not. So Islam believes that Jesus was a good man, that he was a prophet. They actually believe that Jesus was morally superior to Muhammad. They believe that Muhammad is the chief priest, the chief prophet in uh, Islam. They believe he was morally superior to Muhammad, that he never sinned. They also believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. The biggest difference in Islam and Christianity is that Islam believes Jesus never actually died. When Jesus goes to the cross, historically, they believe that someone switched the bodies and that a different person actually was up on the cross, that Jesus was taken off, and that Allah raised him into heaven in that moment. That Jesus didn't die, someone else died in Jesus' place who couldn't cover the sins of the world. Then you look at atheism. Atheism is pretty simple. They either believe Jesus was just a man or that he never lived at all. That's a real argument, even though there is countless historical documentation that proves Jesus was, in fact, a man who lived, atheists will argue that Jesus was either just a man or that he never lived at all. Then finally, you get to Christianity. Christianity claims that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the holy and righteous Son of God who died on the cross to pay for the sins of mankind. We have all these five different worldviews stacked up against each other, and so a pluralist will look at that and they'll say, all of those world all of those worldviews are equally valid. Can they be equally valid? No. You just look at the two claims, Islam and Christianity. In Islam, Jesus never died. He was just taken up into heaven by Allah. In Christianity, Jesus goes to the cross. Verifiable evidence that Jesus went to the cross. Historical evidence, not just biblical evidence, that Jesus did go to the cross. Those two claims cannot be true at the same time. 
A person cannot die in one worldview and live in another worldview. It's not possible. And so pluralism on its face is a contradiction because all worldviews make truth claims and all truth claims have to be exclusive. You can't have your cake and eat it too if you're a pluralist. And I use the example of Jesus. There are multiple examples. Like I really wish that we had more time and that you guys had more attention span. But like we could go into sin, salvation, the nature of God, the nature of man, create like all of these different things are different in different world religions. Like it, it's crazy how off pluralists are. And if you want to talk more about it, we can like chop it up. I could be here until literally 10:30 at night talking about this stuff. So when we examine the claims of pluralism just on the topic of Jesus, we see immediately primary figure of all Christian thought cannot be pluralistically believed if you're putting it against the claims of Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, atheism. And so this leads us into how, how do we determine which worldview actually has the truth? If they all can't be true, can one of them have the truth? Can we believe in one of them? And that gets us to our third point, which is looking at the four questions that every worldview has to answer. Before we get into those, there are a few things that we need to understand. The first thing when you're like looking at a worldview, a lot of people have the misconception that looking at a worldview, it has to answer every single question you could possibly bring against it. Like if Christianity can't answer every single question, it's not valid, it's unbelievable. There is no such thing as an all-encompassing worldview. No worldview can answer every question because there are too many questions to answer. That's the first thing that we need to understand. But what we have to get is that it's not that it has to answer every question, but here's the, the criteria for how we believe a worldview. We ask the question, does the worldview presented offer up adequate evidence Evidence, not just claims, for us to say that we can believe it and follow it beyond a reasonable doubt. Does it present enough evidence that we can say we can believe it and follow it beyond a reasonable doubt? Reasonable is not just a word here. Reasonable implies that we are reasoning out the evidence that's been presented. It's not just, here's the evidence, okay, cool, I'm going to throw it away and just not believe it. You have to consider the evidence that's presented. The second thing that we have to understand when we're considering a worldview are these four questions. A worldview has to answer the four questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. This is not something I came up with. This is something that people who are way smarter than me, who have been dead a long time, came up with. It's recently been used by a guy named Ravi Zacharias. If you're like bored searching YouTube, look up Ravi Zacharias' videos because that man is a genius. So origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. But with the answers that they give, they must be, again, believable beyond a reasonable doubt. And they have to be coherent within one another. I can't give an answer to the, the question of origin and then totally negate it with the question of meaning. Or I can't give one answer about morality and then totally negate that answer with my answer to destiny. I, I can't do that. It has to be a coherent worldview that goes from origin to meaning to morality to destiny. All of them have to flow together. And so we're going to look really quickly, as fast as I possibly can, at the different worldviews that we've been presented as far as how they answer those questions. So the first thing we got is Hinduism. 
Hinduism believes that everything began with this giant, vast ocean. On the ocean is a, a huge cobra, a giant cobra. In the coils of the cobra is the god Vishnu. At one point, somewhere in history, a lotus flower sprouted out of Vishnu's belly button, and in that lotus flower was the god Ganesh. When you think of Ganesh, we've already seen Vishnu is like God the Father. Think of Ganesh as God the Son, except, again, there are 330 million deities in Hinduism. And so Ganesh is like the creative force behind all things. And so uh, Hindus believe in this thing called reincarnation, where history repeats itself over and over and over and over again in cycles. So Ganesh creates every living thing in a cycle. And so at one point he creates man and woman. At another point, he creates donkeys. At another point, he creates horses. At another point, he creates cows. And they're all cycles of re, uh, reincarnation that repeat on top of each other. That's what they believe when they think of the question of origin. The question of meaning comes down to these four tenets. Four tenets are called artha, dharm, kama, and moksha. And so here's how those things play out. Artha and dharm are basically the pursuit of financial wealth and worldly pleasure. Financial wealth, worldly pleasure, and they say, pursue those things at all cost. Get that. Pursue wealth, pursue worldly pleasure. Then Kama and Moksh tell you to forget about worldly pleasure and material wealth. That's, that's how it works. Kama tells you to forget about these things, to, to be immaterial, basically. And Moksh says to separate yourself from all things worldly so that you can achieve nirvana. It's this thing that Hindus believe in. It's basically the, the Hindu version of heaven. So, if the Hindu doesn't do these things well enough, they are doomed to repeat the cycle of reincarnation. But here's the deal. If, let's say, I'm a man today, and I do a pretty good job at pursuing artha, dharm, kama, and moksha, then later on, in my second cycle of reincarnation, I might become a wealthy man, rather than just a man. But, if I do a poor job at pursuing artha, dharm, kama, and moksha, then I might come back as a cockroach. There's no criteria for determining what I would come back as or what the successful attempt at achieving all four of these things is because, like I saw, the first two contradict the second two, and so we don't really know what's going on there. At the end of all things, the hope of the Hindu is that they would achieve nirvana, but again, there is no baseline for what success is in achieving nirvana. It's just for you individually, one day your reincarnation cycle stops and you've achieved nirvana. That's what the Hindu worldview believes. And so, like we've seen, at multiple points, the Hindu worldview falls apart. The two or the four penates, two of them contradict the second two. You don't know if you're ever saved. You don't know if the world ends. You, it just keeps going, just never ending. And so with the evidence that's presented in the Hindu worldview, it cannot be believed beyond a reasonable doubt. So we move on. We look at Buddhism. Buddhism starts on a pretty poor foot to begin with. Buddhists believe that nothing is material. And so the only thing that exists is the immaterial world, and creation was never actually created because it's not material. They kind of figured out really quickly that that doesn't work when people ask questions about it. And so they started coming up with a new story that creation actually began uh, with some sort of like random being, like one day it was just there. Basically is how Buddhists will argue against the immaterial material creation. So 
Buddhists believe that for the Buddhists, there is no finite meaning to life. There's no real meaning to life. The best thing that you can do in life is just to be in awe and to enjoy all the things that are around you, which for us, especially in our culture today, is really appealing. Like It's basically walk outside and smell the roses and have a great day. Like that, that's how Buddhists try to live their life, which makes them usually really affable, nice, friendly people to come across. They're very friendly people. However, they have a, a standard that they would say is their morality, which is called the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path of Buddhism is comprised of these eight things. It's right mindfulness, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, and right concentration. But some of these have to comprise material interaction. You can't have right action if everything is immaterial. Do you get that? Like, if everything doesn't exist, then I can't act on it if it's not existent. Does that, under, does that make sense? Yeah. So for the Buddhists, what they want to do is kind of like uh, Hinduism because uh, the Buddha, the person who's the, the central figure of Buddhism, started as a Hindu and then he rejected two of the tenets of Hinduism and started Buddhism. So the, the goal for all Buddhists is they want, they want to rid themselves of all material want and thus reach inner peace, their nirvana essentially. Buddhists want to reach this inner peace and once Buddhism has kind of been forgotten basically, like this is, I mean, I went to the Buddhist website, like their ideology, doctrine, statement. Once Buddhism has basically been forgotten in the entire world, a character called Maitreya Buddha will come back and destroy the world with fire. I don't know why. It doesn't really give a reason. Um, he'll come back, he'll destroy all things. I'm guessing because nothing is material, but you can't destroy immaterial things with fire. So I don't get it. Again, we see that there, there's no coherent reasoning within the Buddhist mindset, and so Buddhism cannot be reasonably believed. Then we get into atheism, and this is a really popular one for our culture today. A lot of people say that they are religious nons, which basically means that they're either an agnostic, which means that they don't know if there's a God, they can't make a decision on whether there is or not, or they're an atheist, which means they don't believe there is a God. So for the atheists, the world most likely began in what's called the Big Bang. You've heard of the Big Bang. You've been presented it in science class, probably, if you're in public school. If you're not in public school, I don't know what they teach. Probably something better. But a lot of people who are atheists will claim that the Big Bang is absolute truth. Over the last 20 years, you would be shocked at the evidence that has come forward that says the Big Bang is absolutely 100% not able to have happened. And here's why. Here's why. The Big Bang claims that everything began out of nothing. The problem is that nothing can't create anything. Nothing can't create anything. So when you think of, actually, if you want more information about why the Big Bang doesn't work, just come, come and talk to me after this or ask a question after this because there's a lot of material to cover here. Uh, so atheists believe in the Big Bang. That's how everything started. Meaning is subjective. You determine your own meaning. You are the, the master of your own ship, essentially, for atheists. You determine your own meaning. All things are subjective. Atheistic morality is either non-existent or it's subjective. If atheists are truly atheists, they cannot have a morality. Because to be an atheist is to say that there is no God. And to say that there is no God means that there's no absolute moral law. 
To say that there's no absolute moral law means that you cannot be offended if your neighbor comes and shoots you in the face. Like, that's just, when you play out that worldview in all of its implications, that's what it means. There's no standard by which to say it's wrong for you to come to my house and take all my stuff. I don't have a reason to believe that because for you, it may be right for you to come and take all of my stuff. I don't know. Everything is subjective. That's how an atheist determines their morality. In the end, their destiny is the dirt. They will die, and hopefully they have lived as full and meaningful of a life as they can possibly subjectively conjure up. Atheism is not very pretty when you play it out in all of its moral implications. It's not a great way to live. It is devoid of hope, and it will end with you just in a box. Um, Again, with all of the discrepancies that atheists want to claim but cannot claim without either invoking deity or nonsense, atheism does not have the evidence present for it to be a coherently reasonable worldview to follow. Now we get into the the more murky waters. And I want to just be really cautious with this because we're going to talk about Islam here. And so the reality for a lot of you is that you will know Muslims in your time living. Like, probably most of you already know someone who is a Muslim. And the reality is that Islam and Christianity do have a lot of similarities. Like, I'm not going to sugarcoat it and say that they don't. Islam and Christianity have a lot of similarities. It's the fastest growing religion in the world for a reason. But, we're going to see that there are some major discrepancies in Islam that we can't just gloss over when we're thinking about a worldview to base our entire lives on. So first, Islam has a very coherent and defensible origin story. They believe that uh, heaven and earth were combined at one point, and at some point there's a split that takes place, their Big Bang, and that those two things are now separated. The ethereal is now separated from the material. And so that's how they believe that everything started. The, the Hindu, or the, not the Hindu, the Islamic uh, creation narrative for humans is really similar to Christianity's, except they don't really have a definable whether or not it was man or woman first. That's really the only difference. So human creation is really similar in Christianity to Islam, but Islam begins to unravel when you get to the meaning and morality portion of it. So ultimate meaning for Muslims is to give glory back to Allah. Allah is the Arabic word for God. And so that's the ultimate meaning in life, very similar to what Christians believe. Christians, the ultimate meaning in life is to give glory back to God. It's basically the same thing. But Muslims believe that all men are sufficient in themselves to live upright and righteous lives before Allah. They believe that without anything around, that can be a life that you would live. We kind of have similar views. If you read Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, you'll see that it's similar but not exactly correct, and we'll see why when we get to morality. In the end, or yeah, in the end, all things Muslims do, it has to be outweigh, your good has to outweigh your bad. Basically, you're, you're going to be put on a scale at the end of your life and judged, and if your good doesn't outweigh your bad, you get sent to hell. That, I mean, that's really what it boils down to. In order to live upright lives, Muslims have what's called the five pillars of Islam. So the five pillars of Islam are this, faith in Allah, charitable giving to the needy, prayer five times a day, fasting during Ramadan, and a pilgrimage to Mecca, which is the the Muslim holy land, which is contingent on your financial ability. If you don't have the money to go to Mecca, they won't hold that against you. 
nice of you. So Muslims run into a problem here as they claim that adherence to the pillars is supposed to help you live a morally upright life. It's supposed to help you put more good in the scale than to put bad in the scale. The problem comes when Allah is the judge. So Muslims believe that Allah is absolutely sovereign. We would say the same thing, except when a Christian says that God is absolutely sovereign, God's sovereignty cannot be separated from his promises. God's sovereignty can't be separated from his faithfulness. So when God says, I'm going to make a people from my own possession, and he tells Israel that in the Old Testament, that doesn't mean that one day God can just say, you know what, I'm tired of you guys, I'm fed up, boom, you're all destroyed. God will never do that. He will not separate his sovereignty to create or destroy from the promises that he's made because he is faithful to no end to us. The difference with Muslims is that Allah is absolutely sovereign, which means if he makes a promise to somebody and wakes up on the wrong side of the bed one day, that promise is out the window if you make him mad, basically. And so when all Muslims come to the end of their life and You can watch interviews with people who have converted from Islam to Christianity. They'll tell you that a moment came in their life when they realized that all of their good could never outweigh their bad because there was no scale to determine how big their bad was. They didn't know how to deal with the issue of their sin, and so they finally realized there has to be a different answer to how we deal with sin. So that's the boiled down to a nutshell version of Islam's. In the end, Islam bears several similarities to Christianity, but it has far more glaring differences. With no finite way of dealing with sin that has any certainty behind it, the questions of meaning and morality don't flow coherently with Islamic destiny, and therefore Islam is not a coherent worldview that we can reasonably follow. That brings us to Christianity, one that we should mostly be familiar with. So for Christians, the world begins as God speaks everything into existence. Again, we have no idea how much this coincides with the Big Bang Theory and this thing called the surge that we can talk about later if you want more information on that. The ultimate meaning of all Christians is to honor God with their faith in Him and obedience to His commandments. Ultimate meaning there. Where most world religions fail in their jump from meaning to morality Christianity thrives in it because we have one thing that every other world, world religion does not possess, and that is grace. There is no other world religion that has any category for the term grace. Islam doesn't have grace. Hinduism doesn't have grace. Buddhism doesn't have grace. Atheism sure doesn't have grace. So God gives grace to his people by sending his son to die on their behalf and then empowers their obedience, their moral obedience, by the work of the Holy Spirit in them, all of which is consistent in the Bible's teaching. In the end, Christianity possesses the same factors that Islam has. The, the three factors of destiny are resurrection, judgment, and separation of the righteous of the, and the unrighteous. But the major caveat in that is we have grace and the Muslims do not. Christianity predates Islam as well, so don't try and throw that back like, oh, Muslims just didn't get it right the first time and Christians threw grace in. That that doesn't work either. And so we have the major caveat of grace, which says that regardless of our ability to do right, regardless of our ability to outweigh our good with our bad, Jesus goes to the cross, pays the price for our sin, and now places his righteousness in our good side, and nothing will outweigh it. 
That's the way that the Christian worldview works. And so what we come to with all the evidence present, and if you want to argue this and debate it, I'm down. Like, it's cool. With all the evidence that's present, Christianity is the only coherent, reasonable worldview when it comes to the questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. There is no other worldview that will coherently answer all four of those questions with something that is true and reasonable beyond the shadow of a doubt. See, the big thing, the big thing that all of this boils down to is dealing with the issue of sin. That's what the big kind of turning point for Muslims and Christians is, is how do we deal with sin? Hindus and Buddhists believe that you're just constantly repeating the cycle. Atheists believe it doesn't matter. Islam believes that you have to outweigh the good with the bad. But Christianity understands that we can't deal with the problem of sin. And human history would tell us that. Uh, you look back into history books. You like pay attention in your history classes and see that we are not getting better as a society. We are getting far worse. The 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history. People want to claim that we've gotten more enlightened as technology has improved. We have devolved drastically as technology has improved. Our good cannot outweigh our bad, but Jesus comes in the Christian worldview to take that sin away and to give us redemption at the cross that brings us into the destiny of eternity. Christianity does not claim to have all the answers. Like, I'm not a biblical scholar by any means. I can't tell you why dinosaurs exist. But I do know that beyond a reasonable doubt, as I have looked at evidence, and believe me, I have looked at a lot of evidence, Christianity is the only worldview that could possibly come out as something that is reasonable and coherent for me to base my entire life on. So if we've determined that Christianity is the most coherent worldview that we could reasonably follow, we have to ask the question, what does the Bible then say about is Jesus the only way to God? So two questions we answer from the Bible. Is Jesus the only way? And do we have to put our faith in him in order to reach salvation? And so we look in John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, the only way to salvation and relationship with the Father, right there in the book of John. We look in the book of Acts, Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Again, the writer of Acts, Luke, writes it plainly here. Jesus is the only way that we come to salvation. And Luke isn't living in like a Christian bubble here. Like Luke is living in probably the most pluralistic age of all time. Like you look at the ancient Greeks and they had a God for literally every single thing possible, including a God for the God that they don't know about. Just going to throw that out there. John 10.9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is the door by which we enter into salvation over and over and over again. He is the only means by which we come to God. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 23. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruit. So Christ is the first to come before God the Father as being righteous. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, the people who have placed their faith in Jesus, now come after him as he is the forerunner to our faith. The only way we get to God is through Jesus. Finally, we look at 1 Timothy 2.5. 
For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There is one way by which we come to the throne of God, and that is by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. And so some people would say after that, well, you're not saying anything other than Jesus is the only way to God, but do we actually have to place our faith in him? So an argument that people are making today is that I could be a faithful Muslim and it's basically good enough in order for me to come to salvation at the end of time because I've been genuine and I've been faithful in my belief. Romans 3, 19 to 22. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law... This is works for the Buddhist, the Hindu, the Muslim, the atheist. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of the law has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. So here, what Paul's trying to tell us in the book of Romans is that no amount of genuine, faithful works to some unnamed deity or some other world religion will be enough when it comes time to come and and face our judgment before God the Father. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ that we come to the Father. Finally, a passage that you'll all be really familiar with. John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Again, that will never happen in any other world religion. God will never send anything in order to save the people in Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, atheism, animism, whatever you want to ascribe to, that's not going to happen. Keep going. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Again, belief in Jesus is the only way by which we come to salvation. No seemingly genuine belief in any other worldview is going to suffice when we come before the throne of God. So as we wrap it up, and I know that's been a lot, we'll, we'll wrap it up here in the next few minutes. We just want to recap the things that we said at the beginning that we were going to try and address in this talk. So one, does absolute truth exist? Yes, absolute truth has to exist. If absolute truth doesn't exist, society will fall apart. And we know that absolute truth exists because the claim that absolute truth doesn't exist is an absolute truth claim. Secondly, we ask, is pluralism a reasonable worldview to follow? No. Truth has to be exclusive. And if you are a world religion, you are making exclusive truth truth claims that cannot simultaneously be true when stacked up against other worldviews. They just can't do it. They'll contradict themselves every single time. Is there a worldview that coherently answers the questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny? Yes. Only Christianity answers with evidence, not with circular reasoning that, oh, the Bible just says, because if you didn't notice, I didn't use the Bible until I was done with all the other hard stuff. So, Christianity, the only worldview that will truthfully and reasonably, beyond the shadow of a doubt, answer the questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny beyond the the reasonable doubt. 
And finally, since Christianity is the most reasonable worldview, does the Bible claim that Jesus is the only way to God and that all men must believe in him and him alone? Yeah. Well, we've seen that in the book of John, in Acts, in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Timothy, in Romans, and again in John. There is no denying it when we look at the biblical text. And we haven't come to the conclusion that the Bible and Christianity is the most reasonable worldview out of opinion. We've come to it based off of looking at what everybody else says and putting it up against the claims of Christianity. So when we come to the end of this, we see that there is more than enough evidence to state that Jesus is the only way to God and that by faith in Him alone is the way that we come to be reunited with the Father. As I close, I really, like, if I had four hours, I could stand here and constantly talk for four hours, not about what the Bible says, but about scientific, historical evidence that backs up every single thing that we have made claim to tonight. Like, at this point, like, I I don't know how anyone else has an argument against Christianity. I'm from somebody who looked way more at what everyone else says, that's what I've come to the conclusion of. Like, I, I don't know how atheists can continue in atheism. I don't know how Muslims can continue following Allah. I don't know how Hindus and Buddhists can continue to believe that reincarnation just starts the process over again. It, it really just does not make sense in my brain. The thing is that Christianity is not a faith where we've been called to just blindly throw up our hands and say, I've just got faith. When the Muslim, when the Hindu, when the atheist, when the Buddhist presents a question to you, your responsibility is not to just go, I just believe what the Bible says. I just believe what Jesus says. Jesus himself calls the disciples to examine their faith, to look at the evidence, to believe because of what they've seen. Like, go back and read the book of John. Read the book of Luke. Read the book of Mark. You don't even have to go far. Read the first three chapters of John or Luke, and you will see Jesus, them asking Jesus, literally, straight up, oh, why, should, like, why should we follow you? And Jesus says, come and see. He didn't just want them to follow him because he said so. He said, come and see why you should follow me. Christianity is not a thoughtless faith. It is a thinking faith. And if we are not thinking Christians, then we are not faithful Christians. See, the evidence is here. It's up to us to put that evidence together, to take the time of reasoning through our faith, and then to come to the conclusions of what we will believe and what we'll base our entire lives on. Evidence is there. Are we going to look for that evidence?